You are listening to Radio Free Science of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of an occupied America. Welcome to this week's Signs of the Times podcast. I'm Henry. I'm Joe. And I'm Scott. We are here this week with our special guest, Richard Dolan, the author of UFOs in the National Security State. Volume 1 of Rich's book covered the years 1941 to 1973, and he is currently writing his second volume that will bring the story up to date. Maybe we'll be able to get a little uh, glimpse of some of the things that he'll be in, in talking about in that book. We came across Rich's work, oh, back in 2001, 2002, and we were pretty amazed by what he had been able to come up with. And we've been wanting to get a hold of him for, for several years, and we've finally been able to do it. So, hi, Rich. Hi, Henry, Joe, Scott. Thank you for having me here. So you weren't involved or weren't interested in UFOs when you began your research, were you? Not particularly. I uh, grew up with what I think would be an average level of interest in this topic compared with most people. In other words, I wasn't really a uh, hardcore believer and I wasn't a skeptic. I had an interest as a child uh, from having seen a few In Search of episodes with Leonard Nimoy. I remember thinking... That's a cool show. and uh, grew up like everybody else with shows like Star Trek and that sort of thing. But I never really thought in any serious way about the UFO phenomenon. I went through undergraduate and then graduate school, focusing on political history primarily and history and philosophy and literature. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s, I was doing graduate work in history at the University of Rochester, a lot of Cold War studies, in which, at which time I, this question hit me. And it was a very conservative question. I was in a bookstore with my wife, and I chanced across Timothy Good's very excellent book, Above Top Secret, subtitled The Worldwide UFO Cover-Up. Uh, I remember this very well. It was uh, 1993, This book was staring me right in the face, and I picked it up, and I thought, oh, wow, cool. I remember flipping through the book, seeing names that I recognized, um, CIA directors and military and generals and so on, uh, people, some of whose diaries I had studied, like James Forrestal, Secretary of Defense. Because but at he, the time, your interest was in the Cold War. Absolutely. the national security right. state. But here, here is Timothy Good uh, dropping names and departments that I had studied, but in a completely different context. And, mm-hmm. and I had this feeling immediately of what I I've occasionally call schizophrenic uh, schizophrenic society, schizophrenic culture, where there's an official truth, and the official truth is none of this stuff is real, all of it's nonsense. And then you find seemingly very intelligent, well-informed, serious people who do take it seriously. And everybody in the course of their life has come across claims by high-level military people or, or alleged insiders who have taken UFOs seriously. So I had this crystallized moment in my life in which I just asked myself, I really want to know if this is a serious topic or not. Uh, Because if it is serious, then why have I not read about it in any academic history book ever? Mm -hmm. Um, Even if it was a mistake. Even if you go back to 1950 and you discover that a three-star general was really worried about 
UFOs as something unexplained. Would it not be interesting to go back to that moment to be a fly on the wall of that general's office and find out why he would be taking it seriously? How could that not be interesting in the context of the Cold War and so on? And so that was really my very conservative entry point into this field. I just didn't want to know what are UFOs necessarily. I just wanted to know was it a valid historical topic. And that turned out to be the kind of crowbar by which I I pried my way into this field. And then how long did it take you to go from there to realizing that, yes, there was something there and it might be something that that is fairly important? Not particularly long, to tell you the truth. What happened was uh, I went in, I read, I picked up Timothy Good's book and I read it and I remembered thinking, wow, can this be true? Can that be true? Could there have been a Portuguese Air Force encounter with a UFO that actually did that? Uh, could there have been this U.S. military encounter? Uh, in other words, it was one military encounter after another that really got my attention. Could this uh, director of scientific intelligence for the CIA really have said that to his boss, that this phenomenon uh, involves a, a truly unexplained you know, phenomenon that doesn't involve any known technology? You know, you know, statements that are just really out there but that seemed to be true and it turns out were true. So within a few months, I was I was deep into it. What had started out as a personal pet side project uh, kept growing and growing. And one thing that I did early on was I started taking very methodical notes. Uh, every source, every book that I read, I, I essentially extracted a chronological database. So mm-hmm. I'd go through each book, check off uh, a fact of interest, and put it down in my file. Your, and your each, background is a historian coming out Exactly. There. And then each new datum that I thought was important, I put in chronological order. And, and the real thing that saved me was that I cited each one. Mm-hmm. So every, everything was annotated and cited. So when I went back, I knew exactly where I got my fact, particular mm-hmm. fact from, and I can cross-check and so forth. The next thing I knew, I'd gone through 20, then 30, then 50, then 100 different sources, and it kept growing. And the next thing I knew, I had this enormous factual chronological database. Uh, now, you know, not every single fact that I put into my database turned out to be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to judge and evaluate. But it, it turned out to be an incredibly useful exercise for me because what I, I quickly saw was that most books on this topic are not constructed in a chronological way, not exactly. And by putting a lot of different sources in one huge database, uh, I felt that I was able to see patterns that I might not have seen otherwise. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, the connections between UFO cover-up and a lot of other covert types of activities that were going on in the United States in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, um, there seemed to be a lot of dovetailing that turned out to be useful when I was writing my book. Uh, Make a long story short, though, uh, what started out as a a pet project morphed into this 500-page book. Uh, a book that I wrote as a historical narrative. I tried to do as little uh, opinionati- uh, opinion editorializing as I could, and I really tried in a detached way to write what seemed to be a factually-based history. And that's the result. So the, the book, in a sense, asks a couple of basic questions. Is there a UFO phenomenon that's legitimate? The answer is yes. What is legitimate about it? Well, there are certain military documents, government documents that we have that cannot be argued. They are real. They indicate 
a phenomenon that doesn't have any conventional logical explanation, but yet seems to have existed, seems to have been taken seriously. Third question is, why was this a big deal? And, and one answer among several is that it involved a national security problem, which was there were many of these objects violating airspace that you just don't go in and violate, mm-hmm. whether it's the Oak Ridge Nuclear Facility or Los Alamos or innumerable Air Force bases, naval air stations, uh, Army bases. Objects going in, seen visually, tracked at times on radar, sometimes both attempted intercepts. How much more serious do you want to get in the context of the early Cold War? So once I really saw that there was this very, very big thing, I knew I was onto something that was big, it was important, and that I was not going to let go of. Mm. Uh, when you were following your studies uh, on the Cold War, um, were you aware, before you came across any of this evidence for, for a UFO phenomenon, were you aware of the, the existing proposed reality of UFOs in terms of what is today known as the kind of fringe UFO community or the, 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 the UFO abduction community? Were you aware of that? Uh, I mean, most people are aware, have some awareness of, of, of UFOs. I had very little knowledge of any of that, Joe. I, um, I didn't even know really the full dimensions of the Roswell story. All At that point in 1993, I had heard the word Roswell, the name Roswell. I really wouldn't have been able to tell you much of anything about it, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. None of the names. Uh, as far as the abduction phenomenon, yes, I was aware of an alleged abduction phenomenon. Um, but I, I didn't know a lot about Would it. Would you say that you, were more, that you were pretty skeptical about the whole thing, or were you just completely open-minded? I, I would say I was open-minded, but I was, not a, I was not a believer or a disbeliever. I, I was someone who, where this was um, an interesting possibility mm-hmm. that I had not really tried to assimilate into my world, mm-hmm. which I, I think a lot of people do this. Like, you might watch a documentary on television about UFOs and at the end of it scratch your head and think, wow, that was interesting, and then you file it away mm-hmm. and you don't try to assimilate it into your worldview. I think most people do that, and I think that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Now, I did I, – you know, I had a copy somehow of uh, Whitley Strieber's book Communion, okay. which I, I picked up sometime in the late 1980s. The book was still fairly new, but even that book didn't really – have a, a major impact on me. I remembered reading it, and I, I thought, well, that's interesting, but I had no framework in which to make a judgment about it, mm-hmm. and so I just sort of let it go. It wasn't, of course, wasn't you like that resonated with me. Yeah, you like uh, probably like most people um, ha- um, were influenced by the the depiction of UFOs in in, in common in popular culture. Um, it, they're generally derided, or they're they're it's, it's science fiction. Yeah, so, right. Uh, it, it, it would it be right to say that it was, on, it was only when you started to come across official documents that you kind of were forced in a way to sit up and take That's notice. That's exactly because right, yeah. Otherwise, you could, like the rest of uh, the, the population, just dismiss it as sci-fi, you know, kooks, wackos. Excellent point. Well, I had um, – there was a sense that – I had this sense that there was something meaty behind this, that there was a weighty issue behind it, but I didn't know anything about it. In other words um, – you know, I had heard of rumors and claims that there was a military component to it. But to be fair, I, I really didn't know much about it, and 
it was just not part of my consciousness. I mean, in those days, I was uh, like in my mid twenties. Um, I was working on a lot of other intellectual problems in my life. Mm-hmm. German history, Soviet history, U.S. diplomacy, whatever. And the UFO issue just was never, ever. In academic culture, never, <laughs> never. Mm-hmm. You don't do it. Mm. You're not going to get tenure if you talk about UFOs. God, no. Uh, you, won't, you wouldn't even get it if you were to get into other so-called conspiracy theories like even the Kennedy assassination. Mm. That, I remember very early in the, um, in the early 1990s, I was – I was a fairly experienced graduate student uh, chatting with a, a tenured professor who was – we were talking a little bit about the Kennedy assassination. It just came up, and it turned out that he believed very firmly in the lone gunman theory, Oswald, uh, acting alone. And this professor was a very liberal, kind of left-leaning professor, at least in the academic culture. And then he discovered that I did not believe in that. I, I did believe that there was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. And at one point in the conversation, he gave me this look like, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. And and I instinctively knew I better chill out right now because if I go any further with this, mm-hmm. I'm not going to have much of a career in the <laughs> academic world. Mm-hmm. So that's something as mundane as the Kennedy assassination, and there are very distinct limits as far as how far you go. UFOs are completely off off the map. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no it's amazing how they've associated uh, – uh, essentially, any belief in conspiracy theories with the fragility of mind almost. You're looked on as though you are essentially not uh, able for any kind of an official position in, in the world of academia because essentially you're slightly unbalanced. It's you- mystifying in a way because even uh, – right, you got you have the left-wing and right-wing professors. Um, so look at the left-wing ones first. Uh, these are people who look tend to look somewhat critically at – uh, for example, the United States government in a lot of ways, foreign policy. Um, and they're not afraid to talk about even things like U.S. imperialism abroad. They'll mm-hmm. do it. Uh, they'll talk about corporate domination of mm-hmm. the world. And yet there's they stop at a certain point, and it's almost as if they fail to see that people who are at the top would, would ever, ever work together covertly for their own end. Well, of course. I mean, conspiracies, in a sense, are part of standard organizational culture. Um, but, but within academia, you almost never find studies of the intelligence community, ever. There, it's very rare. Mm-hmm. And there's – so there's very little acknowledgement, even in the academic literature, of academic relationship to, say, uh, the intelligence community, like the CIA. There's only a handful of books that discuss these things. So what I like about these types on the left where as far as, as far as they can go is that Bush and the Bush administration just capitalized on it. Oh, on You know, they like took 9/11. advantage, say, of 9-11. Right, exactly. Or whatever. And then they say, oh, conspiracies. You know, if there were conspiracies, it would come out. You know, they wouldn't be able to keep the conspiracy right. secret. And then you go, yeah, well, look, you know, here's somebody over here talking about it. Here's somebody over here talking about it. There are all sorts of people who – who are talking about these things and right, right. and it's there in front of your nose and they and they, also i mean the there are there's some very good studies on the centralization con- and consolidation of mainstream media mm-hmm. all right this is very got a great academic literature it's very well understood uh that 
look, it's a lot easier to control mainstream media if you only have five or ten major organizations to deal with as opposed to, say, 200 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right? So – and yet there's not – there doesn't seem to be a corresponding recognition that it's easier now to, main, to, to manipulate mainstream news. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, in other words, mainstream news could possibly be complicit mm-hmm. in cover-ups. There's academicians and, of course, media are not willing to go there. Yeah. So it's frustrating for people like us. You know, we can see it, and uh, whether it's with 9-11 or with the UFO cover-up, uh, both of these are, are issues that are f- well beyond the pale. It's, it's one reason w- when I started, you know, to get back to uh, writing this book of mine, uh, the process of writing this book was, in a sense, my divorce from the academic community because I started researching it. I was still very much involved in my graduate studies, and it was about after one year. I was doing both at the same time. I was mm-hmm. doing, I was still trying to do a, a Ph.D. dissertation in U.S. Cold War strategy circa 1950. At the same time, I was doing all this UFO stuff, and I, I kept thinking of this schizophrenic reality. The UFO reality and this the official reality, and and I had become convinced that there was a UFO reality, and it was increasingly disturbing to me and and dissonant for me to try to to look at the one and then the other. And it was at the end of that first year. There's no jobs for historians anyway. I really didn't want to drag my family around begging for some adjunct instructing position somewhere. So I said I'm out. Uh, it was a tough decision personally. It was the hardest decision I had ever had to make in my life up to that point. But I'm very glad I did it, and it really liberated me then to dive into this field. Uh, Writing this book really was the dissertation that I I wanted to do. And it took me me into into a realm of uh, what I now call myself is an independent scholar Mm -hmm. and uh, much more liberated, I think, than I could have been in the world of the university. (laughs) <laughs> to put it mildly, yeah. yeah. In the book, you you talk about the uh, the fact that uh, because you've got the U.S. military scrambling jets to uh, chase after these these objects that are going over highly sensitive areas, uh, that that indicates that the government itself is taking this very very seriously. Right. Yeah. Um, that also suggests that. Some of the, uh, the the people that that say that the government is in cahoots with whatever is up there um, might also have to be looked at in a different light, because you wouldn't be scrambling all of these jets up if you knew what they were, and these were your close space brother buddies. That's a good point. It makes it a very problematic explanation to say that we're in cahoots with them. I go back and forth because there there are there are inside leaks and rumors you hear these frequently enough that indicate there uh, is supposedly some level of collaboration. I think it's possible that there is, actually. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's undeniable. What is What we know for sure is that there's a history of confrontation as well. And this goes back right to the beginning, and it has continued to our own day. Uh, right into the 21st century, there are account after account after account, many of these in the military documentation, others simply multiple eyewitness accounts, but they are consistent, which show exotic objects being chased by our own aircraft. 
and not just uh, U.S. military, but military of other nations have a long history. France, uh, Soviet Union, China, um, you know, all of the NATO countries, South Africa, Iran, and other nations have had their jet fighters engaged at various points in history with these objects. Any, that seemed to just outclass. Any reports us. from Israel on this? There, I, I don't know. There are Israeli UFO reports. Uh, I'm not off the top of my head aware of encounters with the Israeli Air Force with UFOs, but in the late 1990s, there were there was a wave of very bizarre and interesting UFO encounters in Israel, including some interesting triangular aircraft. Mm. Well, so we came across an interesting Israeli link in a recent false flag operation that Joe wrote about where uh, one of the people who was involved in kind of spotting, what was it? Who's yeah, he was the guy who uh, was the, on the, the hired or the paid, appeared to be paid anyway, when you looked at the story, uh, first responder eyewitness to an alleged Palestinian suicide bombing. It was just the last one in Eilat uh, down in the south of Israel. And this guy was right there. He was, he was corroborating all of the official story from an eyewitness point of view. And he, uh, we dug up some more information and found out that he was also involved in uh, what turned out to be essentially faking uh, UFO uh, encounters quite elaborately, actually, hmm. in, in Israel. What is and his I, name? I'm sorry. Uh, I can't remember uh, okay. off the top of my head right now, but uh, I can, uh, I'll look it up and we'll uh, I'll get That's to bizarre. Later. So faking UFO encounters and also faking, you're saying, uh, an encounter with... Or, well, essentially faking Palestinian suicide bombings Palestinian or be, suicide having bombings. a part in that. Well, that sounds like an intelligence operation, does it not, gentlemen? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so it's all linked. Probably you know, get an is, argument from somebody on that. Yeah, this is one of the things you know we, we, we've talked about a little uh, uh, recently. Um, with, well, with Richard, it's just the idea of, of everything being – when you really look into it, you start seeing these threads that link – so many different things, so many bizarre uh, and, and what are called conspiracy theories uh, in our world across the board, they all, now and again, are, are, are more and more, you see the links between them, between the, yeah, people well, within them. And there are more connections than I would have ever thought. Uh, writing this book and then being in this field has required me to rip away layer after layer of illusion. And uh, every time I, I get to a new layer... I think, okay, maybe I've got it. And then, you know, another year goes by and I learn some other major thing and <laughs> there goes the next layer. And so now I'm at the, you know, I started out with the point of I just want to know is there a UFO reality and possible cover up? But you can't just stop there, at least I couldn't. Uh, and that takes you into this entire nether world, the, the black covert world. And what what I find, and I think what a lot of us here have found, is that that. There is an enormous – I don't think people fully – I don't think most people appreciate how massive and powerful and wealthy this subterranean covert spy world, let's call it, is. There's billions and billions and trillions of dollars apparently that have gone missing from our official global economy and have gone, well, where? Good question. There, you know, we know for sure that there are a huge number in the United States of black ops, that is, um, covert operations that aren't supposed to exist but do, that appear to have enormous sums of money with no oversight. 
So fill in the blanks, guys. What does that mean? There's There are groups that are able to have tremendous leeway in pursuing uh, activities that are that are in their interests without the rest of us knowing about it. Mm-hmm. That could include uh, all kinds of covert responses to UFOs of a wide range. That could include, hey, things like 9-11. That could include uh, all kinds of uh, covert biological weapons testing or mind control experiments or uh, false flag operations. The, the thing is it's difficult to get a handle on it because officially these – these activities don't exist, but but researchers know that they do exist, and so we're up against an enemy. Let's call them that. They're an enemy that hasn't officially revealed themselves. It's like they're, you know, like in the movie Predator, the guy who the alien has mm-hmm. got the he's invisible. Mm-hmm. So you can't see. That's like what we're going against. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These guys, in a way, they're almost invisible because they don't get. They don't get any major media attention, and they don't want us to be looking at them. Mm-hmm. But they're very powerful. Mm-hmm. When I think about the uh, the whole UFO phenomenon and, and what you have uncovered, you know, through your research and in your book, um, I it seems that there there are various levels uh, of evidence, let's say, of or strengths of evidence. For a, for a UFO conspiracy, the strongest perhaps being the, the official document evi- uh, documented evidence of um, of U.S. Uh, fighter planes chasing objects that they that they mm-hmm. clearly don't know what they are I and, would and agree. can't apprehend yes. them, and that's a strong strong. Right. I mean, that's pretty <clears throat> bulletproof, right? There, yeah. right? From there, you build and you you go into more evidence, and it starts to get maybe a little more. Uh, well, dub- speculative, perhaps. Yeah, or right. dubious, or, or it's hearsay, or it's, sure. it's, it's reports of what someone said, an official said, but there's maybe no documented evidence of, mm-hmm. per se. <clears throat> um, but even if we just keep it at the official level, right, uh, or the strongest level of evidence, um, basically, and even if we take the uh, the, the, the the least conspiratorial uh, theory that, that that we that we base on that evidence, that is that there are. Uh, craft that appear not to be of this world or of human making, let's yes. say, uh, that are visiting and have been f- for for quite some time. Now I wonder why, in that situation, what is the answer to the question of why would the government want to keep that? If that was just where it stopped, if that's all they knew, why would they even want to keep that piece of evidence? And I'm just, I'm just Why would they want to hide the hidden from the public? Why would that have to be secret? If that's all it was, let's just imagine that that is all it is. If that's the, that's just the to the that's the level to which it has has got at this point, where the only thing that the governments of this world know is that there are these craft that visit the planet and that they are of a technology that uh, we don't understand. Why do they want to keep that secret? Well, the. Um <clears throat> That's exactly the question that dominated the field for the first 30 years or so. In other words, there was no recognition in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and 70s that we had acquired hardware from them. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was not up for consideration. The question was, the government seems to be hiding what it knows that there appear to be aliens here on this planet with us, uh, possibly surveilling us or you know watching us in some way, maybe some limited interaction. So the question was, well, why wouldn't the government 
just come out with it. Uh, we're grown-ups. We can handle it. Of we're course. not all going to jump out of buildings. Um, and so th- the dominant explanation on that level that you, you often hear is, well, they're afraid of social panic, threat to religious beliefs, and so forth. In fact, I don't believe – I mean, that's, I don't think that's why there's secrecy. I do believe – it becomes a much more serious proposition if you have hardware that you've acquired than if you don't have hardware. Mm-hmm. And what, what, what has come out since the late 1970s increasingly is a, account after account after account of individuals who have claimed to have witnessed either uh, a, the retrieval of you know, a UFO crash or dead alien body, uh, you know, in cryogenic storage, for example, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, mm-hmm. or or any other number of stories directly linking to alien technology. And what I think has happened is that, like, pretend that you're the president of the United States in 1947, you're Harry Truman, and, and your top advisor informs you that, well, sir, we've apparently recovered technology that was not does not appear to have been manufactured by human hands. So now, as the president, you have to decide what do you do about this information. Do you sh- do you tell the world? I think the answer is no. And the answer, because we know historically the United States was not willing to share atomic technology with mm-hmm. the world. This was a big issue at the time. It was the United Nations in 1947, in fact, was asking the U.S. to make atomic technology under international control because it was considered too important to for any one nation to have. And Americans' answer was, no, this is the quickest way to give it to the Soviets, and we don't want to do that. So there was no willingness to share atomic technology. I can't imagine why they would want to share something as exotic as alien technology. The best way to keep that to yourself is to keep it secret. And what I believe... Harry Truman and his successors did was to gather his top advisors around him and say, figure out what we're going to do here. Figure out how we're going to utilize this technology if we can. And by the way, figure out who these other beings are. Do I have anything to worry about? I think that's a logical thing that you would do. And that's not an irresponsible thing. Mm -hmm. The problem is that as time goes on, secrecy has its own momentum. Mm -hmm. And, and its own profitability. Mm-hmm. So what happened, that I, what I believe happened, is that, and this is the crux of the secrecy, to exploit that technology, I think you have to farm it out to private industry, corporate players who have the scientists, they have the R&D personnel, they got the engineers, they can try to replicate this or at least understand it and come up with their own nifty little ideas. Mm-hmm. And... This is like the goose that lays golden eggs for these guys. They have no incentive for sharing their knowledge of this technology with anyone because they're making a mint off of it. Um, that's what I think it comes down to. And, and increasingly, when in every other aspect of our society, analysts are able to see how corporations and private money has taken over the international political structure, and that includes national governments – uh, you know, everyone talks about the revolving door between the Pentagon and, and private defense contractors. Mm-hmm. That's that's a no-brainer. <clears throat> so that this is a very attractive option for secrecy is you mm-hmm. privatize the money 
and a small little clique of people are making a huge amount of money off this technology, and they have no incentive for sharing this with the world. So that's, I think, a big part of the motivation for the secrecy. Okay. And, then, and the, the other one that I would just say is the longer you lie about this, the harder <laughs> it becomes, the more of a public relations mm-hmm. nightmare it's mm-hmm. going to be to let this out because mm-hmm. you have to then explain why you've lied. Exactly. And you open up a can of worms mm-hmm. of related topics that are not going to be easy to, to deal with mm-hmm. publicly. Well, one of the things that, that, that occurred to me was uh, at, the, at the beginning when you, when you began to answer that question, uh, you mentioned uh, some of the plausible you know, reasons as to why they would keep, say, uh, just the evidence that there are apparently uh, non-terrestrial craft flying in our skies mm-hmm. and, we, and we can't catch them. Um, you mentioned religion uh, right, as yeah. a plausible explanation. I think that... Um, just that fact alone, if they were to release that fact, that would immediately blow open the myth that really uh, underpins a lot of religions, uh, a lot of well, the major world religions, mm-hmm. in that uh, we are alone in the universe. Uh, we are God's uh, special creation, and you know, I mean, people say that you know the flat earthers uh, are long since dead, but I mean, there is th- that that <laughs> idea. Uh, those archaic, kind of m- yeah. completely misinformed ideas are still still underpin the major world religions. I mean, I Christianity so. still says, although not Islam. Actually, <coughs> Islam, Islam, which exactly. recognizes the uh, you know n- the extraterrestrial reality uh-huh. know, according to the Quran. Yeah, but the thing is that uh, it basically blows open that that uh, that that myth of religion, and would these people that keep the secret probably uh, very quickly came to the conclusion that uh, it would do away with. Uh, Quite possibly, very quickly, do away with, um, say, Christianity. Well, yeah, we can be grown-ups here and recognize that the the Christian religion has been used for two thousand years as major support for political uh, power. And yep. I mean, that's but not a me, radical thing to say. And so, by undermining the religion, you undermine the structure of power. Yeah, and they don't want to do that. No, and f- and that points very directly to the nature of government, the nature of the power structure on the planet. And I'm just trying to get back to basics here in mm-hmm. a way and to kind of – because this is something that I think a lot of people don't really uh, want to, to, to uh, accept is, a, is that the, uh, the purpose of major world religions and of governments and they're all like all essentially linked together is to control the population. I said testify, people. brother, that's right. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and for, but for me, this, 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 this little piece of evidence that can be logically uh, inferred from, from, from the facts in, in, in your book uh, points to, it's almost like a smoking gun to the nature of government, the nature of religion, to control the population. And once you've got there, once you've got to that point, once you've accepted that and, and that there's not really any wiggle room anymore, mm-hmm. well, then you go, once you establish that as a reality, well, then you're in trouble because you've got to start asking yourself, well, what else? Uh, what other tactics? What other uh, data have they been keeping from the population across the board uh, to essentially maintain uh, their, 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 the goal that they have that, that is established by what I'm saying to control the population? Yeah, I think that, that is the nature of government. It's, it's control. Uh, the UFO phenomenon didn't just fall into anyone's lap. It fell into the lap of a powerful national security apparatus. And that apparatus was the United States military industrial complex, let's call it that. And so this wasn't just any old organization that had to deal with it. These are the guys with the resources and the 
intelligence. I mean, these are very brilliant people. They had to decide what what to do about this. And the UFO phenomenon threatened their status. I think there's no question mm-hmm. about that. Um, the interesting thing is trying to understand the attitude of the UFO operators themselves, or the aliens or these extraterrestrials. Um, they, you know, I've, I've spent now more than 10 years trying to figure it out myself. What is their attitude toward us? Um, on the one hand, they engage in various provocative ways with the militaries of the world, often playing little cat and mouse games, almost seeming like they're having fun with, with toying with us. On the other hand, there's very few instances in which they seem overtly or aggressively to be shooting our our guys out of the sky. I mean, there are cases when aircraft appear to have been lost, but it typically appears to be cases when we're going after them. So you could argue, as some do, that they're not overtly hostile. On the other hand, um, I think there are reasons to be very suspicious, deeply suspicious of, of what they are, um, at all times, I, I feel like, you know, whereas I wonder about the nature of these other beings, I, I've never been comfortable trying to uh, make a definite determination as to whether I think they're good or evil. I suspect that there's a bit of both involved. I think if they were really good, though, they would have helped us out a little bit more right now. I mean, we're, we're on a high-speed train, and the tracks are headed toward the ed- edge of a cliff, and I don't see... Uh, Space Brothers trying to bail our sorry asses out here at the 11th hour. So that's that's one argument mitigating against against their good nature. Oh, um, they're coming. They're coming. They're, they're, they're coming. Hold on. Just wait. Just, just wait. wait. Just wait. The 11th hour. They'll be here. I, I suspect, though, that they are intensely interested in us. I've, I've felt this for a long time. Um, you know, we're going through such a rapid change in our own civilization. Sometimes we, we lose track we lose perspective on on just how incredible our moment in history right now is in a mere hundred years we have reinvented ourselves into such a way i mean think about a person living at the turn of the 20th century they wouldn't be able to recognize our civilization today because of the rate of rapid technological change and and i personally believe that that rate of change is continuing and maybe even getting more rapid so that in another 20 30 40 years we're going to be even more unrecognizable so these other beings i'm sure that they're interested in us they might even be a little bit concerned about these warlike individuals who are going to be getting some really dangerous weapons in the next few generations um they might very likely want to keep tabs on us. They might even want to find ways to manipulate us in certain ways. Um, and this is where I think we get into some interesting issues. They're not all provable, but um, I have personally speculated many times that if I were an alien here on Earth, I would be very interested in these humans, and I would probably want to find ways of of managing that culture. And what I would do is to probably have a few humans working for me um, in positions of power. Now, that's that's a grand conspiracy theory that a lot of people are going to say, "Oh, you know, this guy's gone off the deep end." But in fact, it's uh, it's an idea that I think is is plausible, although I can't prove it. 
What's a theory that we would be more or less in in agreement with you about? Uh, And it's the fact that that we do have this as a, say, a, a working hypothesis has gotten us into trouble with it's signs of the times we spend a lot of time looking at what's going on in the world Mm -hmm. and we've spent a lot of time analyzing 9-11 the follow-up to 9-11 who was responsible for 9-11 and trying to make alliances with other people that are concerned to getting to the truth and the fact that we are interested in UFOs and in ET and in the possible link, you know, what are these beings? What is their interest in us? And is there, you know, heaven help us, a link between ET and 9-11? Right. Uh, yeah. It means that we get the door slammed in our face. And we've been told yeah. by other very serious 9-11 researchers who, whose work we, we quite respect that they would be happy to work with us, but only if we stop talking about all of these other issues. But the extraterrestrial UFO the extraterrestrial thing in particular. UFO issue. It's funny because when I started talking publicly about 9-11, it was the first time I ever spoke publicly about it. It was at a UFO conference um, in 2007. I'd say about three years ago, maybe four years ago, either in 03 or 04. I'd been studying 9-11 for some time by then. But I hadn't talked publicly about it. Mm-hmm. So then I did, and I will say the people at this conference were 100% absolutely into it. But afterward, um, a few researchers came up to me. One in particular, a friend of mine, chastised me. He said, look, you're going to lose all credibility as a UFO researcher for, for <laughs> doing 9-11. And I said, I said, hey – Dude, I research UFOs. I have no credibility. Let's get that. Secondly, you need to get on board because 9-11 is an issue that's not going to go away. Unfortunately, the 9-11 researchers, you're right. They are not aware that the UFO problem is real. It is significant. It's the What is a bigger conspiracy, UFOs or 9-11? It's close, but I'd say UFOs. Mm-hmm. My opinion. They're both important. They're both monumental in our age. But the 9-11 researchers, um, if any of them are listening, they need to understand that the UFO cover-up is not fun and games. This is serious, Mm -hmm. serious stuff that involves more money than they have any idea about. I have spoken with with very, very elite individuals, and unfortunately these are people – I can't, you know, they they have to be anonymous. And that and for anyone listening to me, they don't know who I am. They don't know anything about me. It, it's a, I don't like to put anybody in a position of having to trust me. I don't like to do that. My work is, is all above board. As a historian, this is what I do. On the other hand, when people come to you in confidence, what are you supposed to do? You can't just give them up, all right? Um. I have spoken to a handful of very prominent individuals, a few of whom are world famous, who have said to me point blank. They say it's not a matter of speculation for me. It's a matter of factual knowledge that at deep, deep levels of our national security apparatus, one person, a scientist, said to me that this information is so compartmented that I would be astonished at how secret that at that level there are scientists who are in possession of and are studying alien technology and bodies. One person who has said this is Apollo 14 astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon. And Mitchell hasn't just said this to me privately in confidence. He said it publicly. 
a number of times. The man has gone on record. Now, you out there listening can think, well, has Edgar Mitchell lost it? Is he lying? And I think the answer to both of those is no. I don't believe that he's, he's a brilliant man. He's a PhD. Um, and yet he has said this for the last 10 years. So the UFO cover-up is real. And 9-11 researchers, yeah, they need to understand. The, the problem with the UFO topic is that it's got 60 years now of ridicule. And so people are instinctively afraid of it. And I can't – it's not like I blame a 9-11 researcher for staying away from UFOs. I understand the feeling. But I would even encourage them, if, if nothing else, then privately to start looking into this. Get your head out of the sand and look into the factual foundation for this. This is a serious issue, and, and this, too, is not going to go away. Just like the 9-11 issue will not go away until it's resolved, so, too, neither will the UFO cover-up. Well, I would agree with that, and um, I would say anybody who reads your book um, will be appraised of the of the fact that this is a, a reality. And from there, um, you have to accept that, for example, this the, the issue of, of UFOs is very is uh, intrinsically or inextricably linked with nine eleven. It, it because, could very well be. Well, it has to be because you posit that there are people, there are high level people who control. Uh, a lot of what's going on in the world. I mean, you look at uh, America. America today is an empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has, you know, uh, bases in the vast majority of countries around the world. It controls uh, or rapes and pillages other, uh, the economies of other countries and through uh, American and multinational and uh, corporations. America has serious influence all around the world. It is a global empire uh, in all but name. Uh, in my opinion and um, so that kind of reach gives you a kind of uh, the, I mean such an empire gives you massive power and control over a lot of things that are happening in the world and if if there is a group of people be it behind the, the, the American government or behind all governments and, and the, there is a lot of evidence to, to posit uh, right. the existence of such a group well, then they're going to know about 9-11. They're going, to, they're going to be the people who were involved in some way in 9-11 because 9-11 was a major global incident that has repercussions all around the world. Right. And UFOs are happening in America all around the world. So the idea that if there's such a group, then they're going to be – they know about right. 9-11 and UFOs. And Put it this way. You, so have, you have two huge truths, all right, the UFO reality and the 9-11 reality. These are both truths that are – um, apparently, definitely known by certain groups that are in elevated positions. Mm-hmm. So, right. I mean, it's logical to assume that there could be a relationship there, mm-hmm. and I, it's not a surprising thing if there were. Um, the one thing about America, I, you know, I've often been criticized by patriotic conservative Americans for supposedly being anti-American, and I would like to point out that that is absolutely not the case. Um, I'm a native New Yorker, and I love America uh, from the bottom of my heart. What I think has happened to America is not even so much that America itself is doing all these horrible things to the world. What I think has happened is that America has been hijacked by transnational, international corporate power, which has 
Um, I mean, not that America as a nation has never been aggressive. America has a long history of aggression. But that in the last generation or two, what we've seen is an increasing level of control by wealthy, wealthy, super powerful international and national groups that have gotten their hooks into American foreign policy. I mean, pretend that you're some multi-billionaire twiddling your thumbs um, on the other side of the globe thinking, gee, how can I make my money work for me this year? Well, one way you might want to is by uh, bribing uh, members within the American government for contracts of all types. And this is so that the American government is the greatest national prize of all. Not that the German government isn't, not that the uh, government of Thailand isn't. They're, they're all, they all have value because there's opportunities for corruption and all. But the American government is the best prize, and also it's got the best military in the world. So if you can control, to some extent, American military policy, wow, you've got it made. This is what's going on. America is in Iraq, and America is in Afghanistan primarily because it's in the interests of, in my view, of transnational power. They want they want privatize the Iraqi oil fields now. Who's going to benefit? Well, certain multinational interests who basically own George Bush, mm-hmm. okay, and he's doing their work for them. So that's the sad thing that's happened to uh, to my great country, and and I mourn it. Uh, I look forward to the day when there, when people can wake up. And just like in the movie V for Vendetta, take to the streets and and make it clear they're not they're not going to take it anymore. That day can come. Things look very bleak right now. Uh, I'm not someone who believes that it's going to be bleak forever. I don't know why, but I do. I absolutely do have this hope and this belief that people are resilient enough that when the veil, the fog is lifted from their eyes, they're going to see this horrible situation, and they're going to get angry enough, and they're going to do something. The king of France had his head chopped off 200-plus years ago. That's not beyond the realm of possibility today. And when it happens, one thing that I am very confident about, it's going to be fast. There's going to be change, and it's going to be rapid, and we're all going to be astonished at how rapidly it occurs. That, that's something that I'm holding on to. In the immortal words of George Bush... Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> yes. Can I misquote him, in the, or not quote him in that way, and use his words against him to bring yep. on his own downfall? The trouble is, if there is any kind of a, of an ET or ultra-terrestrial or hyper-dimensional aspect to this, you know, how many times have heads been lopped and then what takes its place ends up just being a variation on the same theme? And... What do we have to do so that the next time there's one of these key nodal points, we don't just set up the the seeds for for replicating what's gone before, and so that our our children or our children's yeah. children, a few generations right. down, another, find themselves exactly where we are today. Another psychopathic, exploitative hierarchy that you know sucks the blood out of ordinary people. Exactly. Yeah. And, if we're dealing, if if this ET presence that is among us and that has some sort of an interface with a small group of of humans, uh, the reality that they would be coming from is so far beyond what we can imagine. 
You know, they may have the ability to move through time. They may have the ability to manipulate time, to to go back to key nodal points and and kind of keep tweaking history as it develops. Um, well, if that's so, then you know, human history will forever be the tool of these creatures. And if that is so, then there's still there's still one thing that every person can do. There's always a realm of personal freedom and personal expansion of consciousness. Uh, that, as far as I can see, it remains a realm of personal freedom. And indeed, there may be um, a wide array of mind control technologies that they have, and nevertheless, uh, I am not willing to concede that I don't that I lack a realm of personal freedom. My mind, as far as I can tell, is still my own, and as is yours and everyone else who, who's sitting here. So that's that's what we have. I mean, ultimately, I mean, think of it this way. Let's say that um, tomorrow, somehow, the good people of this world succeed in th- overthrowing the totally evil, twisted, screwed up human and uh, ultra-terrestrial entities that run this world, and we are able to create a new, a truly new and just order in this world. Let's say we do that. So then the question is, well, then what? Because then what? We still have to live with ourselves, ultimately. We still have to live with our flawed, deeply flawed selves, and we all have. So, so ultimately, really, the best things that we can do, as far as I see, whether the world is a good place or a horrible place, the the best things that we can do is uh, make ourselves into the most expanded and best person we can do. The reason that I, I do my research these days, I mean, when I started this a decade ago, I, I, I will admit I entertained the fantasy that somehow I might write the book that is the sledgehammer to slash, you know, to smash the walls of secrecy down. I, I did. I mean, I'll admit this and. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Maybe one day, maybe the second book, or maybe some other book. But I don't. That's no longer my primary motivation. Uh, so then I ask, well, why do I do this? Why do I devote so much of my life? I could be doing other things. I could be hanging out at the beach. Um, I do what I do because, honestly, I am genuinely fascinated by this, and I want to figure this out. And I feel that in exploring this that I'm somehow contributing to other people who want to know. Whether that will result in the creation of justice or not, I don't know. I have, I have a faith in cosmic justice. I have a faith that there's a universal justice, but that's not what drives me. It's, it's because I don't want to spend my life sitting on my ass doing nothing productive with it. And this is the best thing that I could think of doing. So, I mean, ultimately, look, if we're going to be enslaved by these ultra-terrestrials, there's still, there has always been, as far as I can see, a realm for personal freedom. And the key to that is recognizing that you have the ability to think for yourself. Unfortunately, most people never get to that that point. They, They don't realize that they have the ability to decide what kind of person that they can be. That's something that we talk about a lot because we meet all sorts of people and there's all sorts of people come to signs of the times. And 
there are people who who read our material and it clicks. There's, there, there are people who who have that that need that that they're driven for the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking recently, and and we about the idea that there is a truth. And it's something uh, that I know that, that you share with us, this idea that, that you can know reality and mm-hmm. there is something to know and you yes. can then communicate that to other people. Absolutely. That's what underpins that idea of the truth is, is, is what uh, underlies the, all of our uh, motivations. And I, I can speak here for, for Richard. Uh, I mean, it occurred to me to ask you, are you really – it said that you're interested in UFOs. Um, mm-hmm. But are you interested in UFOs? I mean, personally, I'm not interested in them in terms of because int- the term to be interested mm-hmm. in something uh, is, is taken to mean I like them or, or I have a vested interest in them in some way. I'm not. In, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm, this is actually an accusation that is leveled mm-hmm. on people. You know, that you have a vested interest in, for example, if you're a 9/11 conspiracy theorist, you just don't like. Uh, the Bush government. You're a Democrat, maybe, or something. So that, that's why you're promoting 9/11 uh, conspiracy theories. You, you know, uh, I'm not interested in any of these things. Right. That, it's that not a like. Or d- it's no, not like. I'm interested exactly. in the truth. The, the right. truth. And when I see lies, it's that 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 galls me. Lies gall me, and I'm, it, it's my interest in the truth that drives me to try to uh, overturn those lies and combat those lies. I would be very happy if UFOs just went away. And if 9-11 went away, you know, and all the nasty conspiracy theories are, are all the, the nasty reality of this life and, and, and the obvious lies and, and, and suffering and death that's going on, if they all went away, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there it is, and I do want it to go away. I want to make a better world. I think as uh, rational, intelligent beings um, – that we have a right to be offended when our governments lie to us so egregiously on these important matters. We have a right to expect truthful government. Uh, that's called the social contract. And that's an old concept that has been, I think, trampled on and uh, by certainly the current presidential administration in the U.S. And, and really for many, many years by many governments now. And it's getting worse, not better. Absolutely. So we need we have a right to expect truth, and we certainly have an obligation to fight for it. Um, yeah, I believe, as, as everyone here, that truth is not relative. It's real. Um, but, of course, it's often hidden. <laughs> so we have to search for it. Um, that's, that's a lifetime's work. Well, we would like to thank Rich for coming in and talking with us. To those of our listeners who are interested in 9-11 and think that UFOs are a load of poppycock, I can only urge you to pick up Rich's book, UFOs in the National Security State. If, if you think that this stuff doesn't exist, there's documents. There's documentation. Mind control technology exists. You need to know about this because they're beaming it down on you. If you live in the United States, you're getting this stuff fed to you through your television. Mm. You're getting it fed to you through God knows what kind of beams, through microwaves. You need to know that this exists so you can learn to feel it. You can you can learn to make a distinction between what are your own thoughts and feelings and what are the thoughts and feelings 
that you are being encouraged to feel through this technology that is being used to control you. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was – I guess we're wrapping up, but um, one thing that I can add uh, very quickly, I hope, in writing my book, uh, you know, there's a UFO cover-up part of it, but you're alluding to mind control. This is something that I did study in the course of writing my book and uh, simply to point out – uh, on one reason to point out that, that the groups that cover up on UFOs are the same kinds of groups that covered up on mind control. But the mind control connection is more important than even for setting the stage or for flavor. Mind control is something that elites do to us, and they do it in a variety of ways. They can do it through technology. Uh, so in other words, the capability to harness the human mind, this is, this is an active field of study in the intelligence world. Been, they've been doing this for more than 50 years. They're very good at it All right, through a variety of technology. And then there's the propaganda form of mind control. And I think if you want a global reach, that's actually the most insidious. Mm-hmm. And uh, the best way to control someone's mind is by having them turn on their television set. Um, yeah, what but is, there's a lot of people in the in the say the 9/11 movement that would recognize that the media is the first bulwark of mind control. Yes, but, that's right. But then they go, okay, but I understand that, and I see how the media works. Right. But they don't understand that there's this other technology that's being used. That you know, they dismiss that completely. Right, the, and and in fact, uh, what we know is that I mean, even in the 1950s. There was very, very advanced work being done to create uh, the so-called Manchurian Candidate. You know, Richard Condon wrote that book in 1959. Um, he didn't just write it out of thin air. Um, so that, in other words, that it was very well understood within the CIA and in the KGB, uh, certain techniques that, were v- that made mind control very amenable. And that, that has simply... They don't stop that. Once you find out that you've got something effective there, once you know how to break down a human personality and control it and create an assassin who doesn't even know that they're an assassin, for example, or create – there's different ways of controlling the human being. These are very sophisticated. Um, So, right, I mean the ways that that figures into the 9-11 cover-up or the UFO cover-up, I mean these are things that we can, I guess, explore, but those technologies are real. Um, I guess the main thing that a 9-11 researcher needs to come away with, though, is that the UFO phenomenon is also very real. Well, you made a comment uh, recently about uh, some of this this UFO information. It's not classified. It's proprietary. Yes, that's right. Um, This is something that was originally told me by, uh, again, one of my uh, several interesting contacts. Uh, this was a person who had very good relationship for a little while with a former four-star general, former member of the Joint Chiefs, who told this individual, he said, the, this general uh, had said, you know, look, uh, defense people, military people, we, we're really not the guys who are in charge of this anymore. This is not a classified issue so much as it is proprietary. And again, this speaks to the handing off of technology to private interests and the increasing levels of control over the whole topic by private groups. What we have really, you can say, is uh, a rogue clique 
that seems to control the bulk of this UFO information. Who are these guys? I don't know their identities fully. I have some suspicions. And it's probably better that you don't know it, their it identities. It probably is. Um, that's right. But, uh, you know, the privatization of the global political system, again, this is something that a, a, an ordinary researcher can probably understand. That same privatization has occurred within the UFO cover-up. Um, this is something that is a major theme of my next book. So that, in other words, to show that we've had a kind of transnational revolution in the modern world during the 1980s and 1990s, I think, during which the major structures of power have become international. Uh, think World Bank, think IMF, think NAFTA, think GATT. Um, legal structures, in other words. So, too, within the classified world, there have been transnational structures. Think, for example, the, uh, the famous Echelon program run by America's NSA in collaboration with the NSA equivalents of Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and uh, probably other nations as well. They have their – and Echelon has its own legal structure that actually makes it independent of national laws. Isn't that nice? So – the classified world has developed its own separate legal structure, and that translates within to the UFO portion of the classified world. These are secret legal structures. Um, people need to understand, like, for example, the National Security Agency's existence was unknown for nearly its first decade. People, it was not a, during the 1950s and into the 60s, the existence of the NSA was classified. And it was America's most powerful intelligence agency, and it was unknown. Similarly, the existence of the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office. Um, for 30 years, the NRO's existence was classified. It was a felony for any member of Congress to mention the existence of the NRO. That's an astonishing reality. So, so what I'm saying is that we have a history in America of classified black operations. Do you suddenly think that that's going to end now? So now what we have is a classified legal structure. And um, I've had very good sources that have told me that a lot of this pertains to the UFO phenomenon. When you said that the, the National Security Agency wasn't known until sometime in the 60s, what kind of flashed to my mind was – well, if by the 60s they were, they were letting the cat out of the bag, that was because they had something behind it that was even bigger and even more nasty that's now the one that nobody knows undoubtedly, about. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. These secrets come out when they become less important, less mm -hmm. relevant. Not that the NSA is no longer important. It remains very important. But, of course, we still don't really know a lot about it, do mm -hmm. we? No. No. You know, most of it is highly classified. But um, – yeah, there's. Uh, I, I had one source, uh, a high-level uh, military liaison, who uh, told me of a congressional aide that he was very close with. This congressional aide was doing black budget analysis and concluded on the basis of, of his analysis that there is a, a massive black arm executive branch of the U.S. government that is totally classified and that in this – analyst's opinion was related to the UFO problem. Uh, I have it on, on another separate source. 
that the amount of money that's gone into this is simply astonishing and that actually um, that the security on the UFO problem was, was vastly more expensive than the actual scientific R&D research and development. So like seven or eight times more money was spent on security, maintaining the secrecy mm-hmm. of UFOs, than actually on the scientific study of it, which was an interesting little tidbit that I got along the way. Through the, the now 13 or 14 years of research and two books, what would be the cases that would come to mind that you would present to, to some of the skeptics, say, in the 9-11 movement or something? These, these people who consider themselves truth seekers but mm-hmm. for whom the UFO question is really you know, not on their radar at all, what cases would you suggest to them that they look at as as examples of the the better documented? Uh, yeah, I would say cases and documents. Uh, cases and documents. Because they're, yeah. you know, for example, one of the most important things that I would have any nine eleven researcher look at is the so called uh, Twining Memo of nineteen forty seven, and this is not a, a about a specific UFO case, but what. It is is a, a statement by a then three-star general who later became a four-star chief of staff of the Air Force who in September 1947 wrote a three-page memo describing the UFO phenomenon as, as it was then seen. Uh, one thing that Twining said in, in this memo is that based on the many military reports that were coming into Air Material Command at that time – that the UFO phenomenon was, quote, real, not visionary or fictitious. Uh, that's one explicit thing he said. Another, another thing Twining mentioned in this memo was a typical description of the many reports that they were getting, describing the objects as circular or elliptical in shape, round, uh, domed on top, and flat on bottom. Uh, you know, it's right there in this memo. So in other words, um, what Twining was saying in 1947 was that there were enough detailed military descriptions of these UFOs to come up with that description. I mean, domed on top and and flat on bottom is very explicit. Metallic in appearance, evasive maneuvers when sighted, uh, normally no associated sound. In other words, what we can see is that as early as 1947, we have definitive proof that the U.S. military was taking the UFO phenomenon very seriously. Now, that in itself doesn't prove UFOs are alien, okay? But do we really need to prove UFOs are alien for them to be interesting, right? Well, there's some people that would say that that this is uh, not Nazi technology that uh, was being used, that there were uh, a group of the Nazis that fled to Antarctica mm-hmm. who were developing this technology, or maybe there well, were some indeed. of their scientists who came to the United States who developed Yeah, sure. Those. And guess what? If, even if that is the truth, that's still worth looking into because that phenomenon is still continuing to this day. And if you want to go with the Nazi explanation, then the only conclusion you can make is that there are Nazis right now in this world who are flying in flying saucers. And that, and is so, that a good thing? So that's not a good thing either. So it's either the aliens or the Nazis or whoever or some covert Amer- human group. No matter how you look at it, it's important. Mm-hmm. And so I think the problem that a lot of uh, UFO skeptics, armchair skeptics or knee-jerk skeptics have is um, they, they jump too many steps ahead in the argument. In other words, 
this happens every time I deal with some skeptical person. I'll trot out a couple of good UFO cases, and immediately they jump ahead and and say, well, UFOs are impossible because fill in the blank. The distances in space are too far. Uh, the truth would have come out by now or whatever. In other words, they, they provide their own theoretical objections. When they say the truth would have come out, I mean, what do they want as truth? The government coming out? And say, I mean, there's all this data. There's all this evidence. Right, right. The truth is out for, for crying yeah. out loud, yeah. you know? Because well, it doesn't come from an official it source. Some people are so, so no, exa- exactly. in awe exactly. of power and dependent on power. So. To answer the, your, your question, though, Henry, as far as some good cases, there are some very, very good ones uh, in the document history. Uh, there's a, a, a 1950 memo that I'm just thinking of off the top of my head from July of 1950 describing – Objects cited over the Hanford Atomic Energy Commission plant in the state of Washington, uh, a document stating that since July 30th, objects round in form have been seen over the Hanford AEC plant. Uh, the document then goes on to say that fighter squadrons of, 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 of Air Force battalions, um, FBI, and others have been alerted to this. Investigation is ongoing of course, there's, we don't have any document showing how that investigation concluded, but we know that there was an investigation there. Uh, there's a, another very uh, amazing document that came out of uh, Oak Ridge in 1953, uh, the sighting of a black object coming out of the clouds, moving at a tremendous speed for three miles where it stopped and then was joined by two other similar objects which created a V formation and then flew off in a tremendous speed to the east, and we're gone. We have that document. I have uh, an emergency uh, memo from Maxwell Air Force Base in 1954 describing the intrusion of that Air Force Base's uh, security by an unknown object that was seen uh, and observed by a helicopter pilot at the base. Uh, There's a, a, a 1955 memo that I'm thinking of, of a radar plus visual uh, by Pepperell Air Force Base of uh, for 29 minutes of an object that was seen visually and tracked on radar uh, of a flying saucer-shaped object. Uh, and so it goes. There's a, a very well-documented case from 1967 at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana in which a glowing object was reported by above-ground personnel while below-ground uh, at the exact same time um, an Air Force captain named Robert Salas, a man that I know, uh, reported and documented 10 nuclear missiles going offline instantly. Bing, 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 they all went down while this object was hovering above. Uh, the documentation on this case is excellent. And in fact, Boeing, which owned the missiles, uh, did its own study of why these missiles went offline and was unable to conclude. They had no explanation. It was. It was did they factor in the UF, the presence of this UFO? No, they Earth? most certainly did not. So, so there was... Um, in other words, I mean, I have no doubt that the Boeing personnel were aware that this had been reported, but in their scientific evaluation of why these missiles went down, they had no – there was no reason they could think of as to why these missiles went offline. But it's a mm-hmm. fact that it was during the sighting of this UFO. So this is early 50s. This is really – Well, this is a 67. That was 67. That was 40 but years it's still ago. During, the, during the Cold War. You bet. If they had thought that it was the Russians – 
you can bet that they would have started launching well, that's missiles right. that's at the Soviet Union. Well, that's right. And this story continued. In 1975, in November of that year, um, in the northern part of the United States and into southern Canada, there was a series of just absolutely awesome, incredible violations of military airspace by UFOs, uh, which are very well documented and have no explanation. Uh, some of the documents describe these objects as possible helicopters, quote-unquote. But the fact is that none of these objects were identified as helicopters definitively. And, in fact, they didn't. The only way that you could say they behave like a helicopter is by the fact that they hovered. Okay, but in fact that they were either silent or nearly silent, which a helicopter is not. They hovered very provocatively over nuclear weapons sites, uh, at these Air Force and uh, military bases, um, in several cases, prompted major base alerts in which military police are traveling around, the sirens are blaring, and it was a big deal. And then these objects would typically just glide off. In a couple of cases, they were, in one case specifically at Wurtsmith Wirtz, Air Force Base in Michigan, which is now closed, um, um, an Air Force carrier was, was vectored in to go after it. This, um, uh, I think it was a C-130, a big, big aircraft, was uh, coming in and, and was told by the air base to, to chase after this thing, which had just left the base, and they said, okay, we're going after it. And uh, this object played cat-and-mouse games with them. They eventually had to turn around because they were low on fuel, at which case the UFO chased after them and sped by them Doing more than in the um, doing more than a thousand knots speed, mm-hmm. which is kind of you know it's fighter jet speed, but yet this same object had been hovering previously over over the uh, base, and then in, in uh, again at Malmstrom Air Force Base once again in 1975 there were two successive nights in which uh, the object this huge glowing object was seen over the base. On the second night, the object went way 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 high up. High altitude, tracked by NORAD. We've got that on record. F-106s were, were sent in to get this thing. And every time the F-106s got into the area, according to the witnesses, the object winked out and was gone and then came back once the <laughs> F-106s were gone. We have all of this on record. What could that be? Could that be some kind of hallucination? Well, doesn't seem likely, especially when you have uh, NORAD confirming this on radar. So there was something there. Is this not serious? Of course it's serious. How could this not be serious? And so we have, you know, many cases of UFO encounters like this that there's no way on earth that it could not be a serious thing for a military, responsible military officer. So, yes, I think there's more than sufficient reason to argue this is a big Are there any of these kind of cases in the... The, the post nine eleven world. Indeed, there are. Um, Has there been any change in the you know in patterns of, of sightings? Or no, Henry. It- the pattern is the same. Um, now, the 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 one difference that we have is that really, even since the nineteen eighties, um, Ronald Reagan issued an executive order in nineteen eighty two that took a lot of the wind out of the sails of the Freedom of Information Act and made it much more user unfriendly and and primarily made it a lot more expensive. So with the result being that it's harder to get government documents out on UFO encounters, but that doesn't mean we don't have cases and good ones. 
Um, there is one very good case in July of 2002. This is post 9/11 of a of an attempted intercept by two F-16 jets right outside D.C. of a mysterious blue object that uh, many eyewitnesses on the ground saw and called into their local radio station, WTOP, which issued a press release on this. That was then followed up by the Washington Post, which interviewed some Air Force personnel who confirmed that indeed there was a jet chase. Um, It's a funny case because the Air Force then said, well, they could have been chasing any number of things without saying what those things could have been. I mean, I would like to know, what blue object could this be? Uh, what object could be blue that outperforms the the pursuing F-16s? According to eyewitnesses, the object descended the sky at an 80-degree angle and stopped, at which point F-16s were chasing after it, and then the object just zoomed, took off, took, took off, took off, sorry, and was gone. Uh, so vastly outperforming F-16s. And you know what? This is such a typical kind of case. It's happened hundreds, not not dozens, not scores, but hundreds of times, where, where our best aircraft just can't compete with whatever these things are. So if this is another human agency, that's a concern. And if it's a non-human agency, well, that's also a concern. So, you know, the, the thing that a UFO skeptic needs to keep in mind is don't think that you're just going to answer this right off the bat. Just keep in mind that there is a true, genuine, unexplained mystery here that involves, strongly seems to involve a technology, somebody's technology. As you were describing this long series of, I think, since the late 40s up till you know, recent years of these objects appearing over our sensitive military installations in the United States. Uh, I was thinking about all those poor people who are traveling and having to take their shoes off and having to take mm-hmm. their belts off right. and having to have all of their bags gone through and, and they get to their destination and they get a little note on the inside saying that their bag was searched. We have all of this going on and yet, once again, it's the public itself that's being made the enemy. The terror is... Boy, that is so true. That is so true. Um, and, and what's even more galling about it is that these objects – I've talked to many pilots, and the pilots would encounter these more than you think, um, and they just – they're not at liberty to talk about it. There have been a number of instances where these objects really look like they pose a genuine air safety hazard. Um, there's been more than one case of, of these objects coming at an airliner – like directly at an airliner and then to veer off mm-hmm. at the last moment. It's a terrifying experience if you're a pilot um, or even if they're not coming at you at an intercept, they might pace you for a short period of time and get uncomfortably close to you. Um, there was a case oh, about a decade ago um, in which uh, right outside London, there was a missile-like object zipping by a commercial airliner and this might have been an alien craft or not. I don't know what it was. But once again, there was, it was impossible to get any kind of government openness from, from the British government on this. Heck, there's things flying around here that are dangerous. And some of them appear to be controlled um, in a very intelligent way. They don't all look like missiles, by the way. So 
do we not have a right to know? I fly, you fly. You know, we're over the ocean sometimes. I want to know if there are objects that I need to be concerned about. So uh, there's a lot of dimensions to this. And, and here we are, right, we've got to take our shoes off because I'm supposed – or, you know, I have to – can't carry toothpaste because I might have explosives in my freaking toothpaste to blow up the plane. And meanwhile, you've got these other things going on that are vastly more important. God forbid that you bring toothpaste on your flight. On your flight, yeah. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. We would like to thank Rich for sitting down and talking with us. The trouble is that the book, UFOs in the National Security State, is just so rich in detail. And it also is rich in in feeding uh, speculation as to the real nature mm-hmm. of our reality here. We could go on and do this again, and, and I hope we'll have Rich back uh, so we can continue this discussion another time. I sincerely hope so. It has been my great pleasure and honor to be here. So thank you for joining us. Uh, and for if you'd like to discuss any of these things, you can come to our website at www.signs-of-the-times.org. Uh, you can participate in the forum. There's a link from the homepage, the science page. And I'd also like to note that we now have a forum in Spanish and also one in French. So once more, thanks to Rich, and we'll see you next time. No more lies. Must we all die? Because of your lies. No. Because of you.